Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we come before you this morning yearning to be taught by your word. And we so desire that you would teach us from your word that we might gain a glimpse of your holiness and of your righteousness and of your grace. We ask that you would aid us as we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that you illuminate and cause to be set in our memories for our remembrance these words in this particular passage concerning the destruction of Sodom. Help us, Lord, to see your righteousness. Help us to be of like mind with you. And we ask for the unction of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in both preaching and illumination this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 19, 1 to 29. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please, turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned in to him, and entered his house. Then he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to them, said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and spoke to his sons-in-law, who married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And when he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, 
I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, that he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Well, we had last week the barter between Abraham and God, Abraham thinking upon the same lines as God, not in looking to evangelize Sodom, but in looking simply to make sure that the righteousness of God would remain righteous. And that he would not destroy in the city those who may be righteous, along with the wicked who should be destroyed. Here, we find the visitors arrive. The angels or messengers come to Sodom and find Lot sitting in the gate somewhat as a judge. He sat where the elders sat. And we find in verse 9 references to his judgments against the Sodomites. He was acting righteously. He greets the visitors in a very humble manner, seeing they're strangers, and he convinces them not to spend the night in the street, knowing the people of Sodom. Instead, he calls them to his house, vigorously, and they accept, they eat a meal together, and they ready themselves to sleep. Beginning in verse 4, all of Sodom was assembled before Lot's house, and they were there for the strangers. The conflict between them began, and all of them came. It wasn't restricted to a particular age group, both young and old, and they wanted to know the men carnally or intimately, as Genesis 4.1 uses the same expression between Adam and his wife Eve to know each other and to bear children. These men wanted to know them carnally, being perverse. Lot comes out of his house and increases on behalf of these men, intercedes on behalf of these men, and he tells the people not to act wickedly, again, judging them. And instead, strangely, to take his virgin daughters instead. In those days, the oriental customs were to see that the visitors were protected and treated well. So Lot has these men have come under his roof, but his solution to the problem was just as wicked as the men who wanted to come and know them carnally. Lot is confused. He wanted to give up his daughters over to these men as we know, sin makes you stupid. And Lot here was stupid. 
the Sodomites get angry with Lot because he judges them to be wicked. And Lot, as far as they're concerned, is only a visitor. And they say to him that they are now going to treat him even worse. Well, at that point, the angels intercede. They pull Lot back into the house. They strike the men with blindness, a very important part of their anatomy, because sight aids in their particular wickedness to continue to sin pleasurably. But it doesn't stop them, interestingly enough. Even after they're struck with the blindness, it says that they continued so that they became weary trying to find the door. So their sin was very deep. And this demonstrates the extent of their depravity. They didn't even give up. They still continued, even in their blindness. You figure that at that point, they would wonder about their blindness. But instead, their sin and their wickedness continues to press them to be more depraved. Beginning in verse 12, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Lot is warned by the angels, and they reveal to him the righteous, the righteous and holy deed that the Lord intends to do to this place. And he, they tell him to gather up all of his family, to leave. The Lord has specifically sent them there to destroy it. And remember, when they had left Abraham, their intention was to go and destroy Sodom. The Lord had already intended it to literally, utterly consume it and sweep it away. Lot had more daughters than just the two in the house, so he speaks with his sons-in-law, and they think he's joking. The angels instruct him. Instead, because these sons-in-law with these other families do not believe Lot, says, listen, take your two daughters, take your wife, yourself, get out of the city. There's no time left. These others seem to have been or become corrupted and stay in the city with their husbands. Lot lingered. He hesitated for a moment. His entire livelihood was there. It's going to be destroyed. He's going to lose everything that he had built up, whatever that was over these years. The angels remove him and his family by the hand from the city dragging them out of the city. The Lord, as the text says, being merciful to him, which stresses the compassion of the Lord to his people. God would rescue his people even though fire and brimstone would not immediately make a pilgrim out of Lot. He is to escape for his life, which demonstrates the utter destruction to come. He is not even to look back and he's not to stay in the plains surrounding the city, for the surrounding cities are going to be destroyed as well as the suburbs. Lot is worried about mountain raiders and possibly the time it would take to get to the mountains, so he pleads to go to a small city. It's a small town, which is named Zoar, which means small or little. The angels cannot destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until the righteous Lot is safe. So they urge him to go quickly. Lot makes it to the city. And the moment that he makes it to that city, 
the Lord begins raining fire and brimstone upon it. The sun had risen on the small city, Zoar, and so fire rises on Sodom. Everything from the inhabitants to the city to the animals to the crops to the weeds, everything was destroyed. God saw it all as corrupted. They had reached the city. The destruction came. And it wasn't like they got there and checked into a hotel. It wasn't like they got there and remained safe. Lot's wife, in hearing the destruction, did not continue to run into the city. Instead, she hesitated. And she looked back. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. A sobering lesson on lukewarmness. And we'll cover that next week, as I said, since Christ told us to remember Lot's wife. Moses places a a final note in 27 to 29. Abraham looked at the destruction of Sodom and saw the smoke rising. So there were none righteous in the city. There were not ten righteous. Abraham may have been thinking many things, especially the righteousness of his nephew Lot and how that would have worked out. But the text tells us that God remembered Abraham and as a result saved Lot. There are a number of different things that we could cover in this particular section of Scripture. I want to cover two things that are very important. One, the Lord's swift judgment on sin. And two, that the righteous Christians can become somewhat affected by the world as a result of a wrong view of those things. The Lord's swift judgment on sin. God gave them no time to repent, which is very interesting. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Genesis 13.13 This is very strange evangelism for God. It's very strange evangelism in light of contemporary Christendom today. Would it not have been better, they were sinning against God, for God to send some people into the city so that they could be evangelized? The words that are used to describe them mean Not only that they were sinning against God, but they were more wicked and lower than the average sinner. So, God must destroy them. He must literally consume them and sweep them away. They were not of the righteous line of the woman. They were not of the nations that Abraham would be father of. They were of the devil. And God does not honor those who are of the line of Satan. What was the sin of Sodom? Rebellion, most assuredly. But the text makes it known that the carnal acts were the fruit of their wickedness. The perverted acts. And it was not an isolated few. It wasn't as if a few men came to Lot's house wanting to know the other men carnally or wickedly in that way. It was the entire city. It was all of them. And their wickedness was so wicked that they desired 
to rape new men who came into the city, to defile them. And it's not very difficult to see what kind of a stance the Lord takes on this kind of behavior. Even Romans chapter 1 makes it very evident and plain. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The Sodomites were abandoned by God given over to their passion, and destroyed for their indwelling sin. Men, women, children, babies, animals, right down to the wheat. The entire city was destroyed. Why? Because God hates sin. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. The prophet Habakkuk says, he cannot look at it, much less tolerate it. Why then does God take so long in destroying other cities of like depravity? Second Peter 3.9 explains it very well. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This particular verse speaks specifically about the elect. God is not slack concerning the coming of the Messiah, of the promise of return and redemption and completion and renewal of the earth. He's not slack. It's not taking him too long. But he's long-suffering toward us, and the us is the elect, as the passage demonstrates. Not willing that any of the us, that is the elect, should perish, but that all, that is the any of the us, of the elect, should come to repentance. And what he's saying is, if God were to end things right now and consummate all things, then, humanly speaking, in considering a timeline of events, certain of the elect would never be born. Certain of the elect would not come to faith. Certain of the elect would then that way be lost. And Peter says, no, God is not slack concerning everything that he promises to do, as some would think. But rather, he's not willing that any of his elect should perish. And thus, as a result, is long-suffering towards Sodom and Gomorrah and New York and Los Angeles and Miami and South Beach, and such. This is why God saves, for example, Lot and his two daughters. They are his people. God is not unjust to destroy Sodom. Thousands and thousands and thousands were killed, and not only does God hate the wicked, but he destroyed the very weeds they walked on because they were wicked in God's eyes, defiling not only themselves, but creation. God hates sin and will bring swift destruction. Pray that God will rescue all of the righteous out of all of the cities that are much like Sodom, that in the end, when the earth is renewed by the cleansing of fire, that they be saved, but be be very aware that it's not by accident that many great disasters take place. 
God's judgment against nations takes place many times throughout the history of the world. Hundreds of thousands of people were destroyed in India as a result of some earthquakes a few years ago. Hundreds of thousands of people were destroyed as a result. Why? Well, because if you walk over here and step on this particular animal, it might be Uncle Bob reincarnated. Or, you know, they, they're not going to touch these holy cows because they worship them. The Lord is not going to tolerate that. There are certain things that he's going to say this much and no more. Remember that Jesus even made the remark that when the 17 died by the Tower of Siloam falling on them, that it was God's judgment on them, and he told those who were in his hearing that they should repent, lest something worse happen to them. So remember, that was only 17 people. That doesn't mean that we're going to read a judgment into everything that happens. Somebody gets in a car accident, thus it was God's judgment against them. But when you see some of these very large and disturbing catastrophes that take place, where hundreds of thousands of people are destroyed, you cannot but read the scriptures and the newspaper with those things hand in hand sometimes and thinking about what God's judgments are. And those particular miseries are nothing in comparison to the misery that Sodom and Gomorrah face right now as they are in hell. The second thing that I want you to consider is that Christians, the righteous, can become somewhat affected by the world. The close attachment Lot had on the wicked society moved him to hesitate when God told him to flee the city. God specifically sent two angels who he witnessed strike these people with blindness, specifically give him a message that he was going to destroy the city, and he hesitated, which is mind-boggling. That demonstrates the amount of sin he was affected with, being in the midst of that sin. And as Peter says, his soul was vexed every day, being in the midst of that sin. Christians can become that way. If Christians partake more of the world than they do of God, what is it that runs their life? What is it that most affects them? If Christians, for example, spend more time with Hollywood than they do with the Bible, which one do you think is going to affect them more? Jesus says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Garbage in means garbage out. There's no way that a Christian who plays with the fire of the world will not be burned, as the proverb says. Lot was burned, so to speak, and hesitated when he was warned by the angelic messengers. And that's how much he was influenced by his wealth, his living in the city. Christian might say, I'm in control, that will never happen to me, I'll make sure of it. But 1 Corinthians warns us, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. God does not send messengers to us to be warned. How shall a Christian know then? We don't have angelic messengers that come to our door and say, hey, you need to stop. We might be in sin. We might not know it. How shall we know? We don't have a prophet, Nathan, who's going to point out to us what we should do or what we shouldn't. Thus says the Lord. But God has already warned us. 
He has already given us his word. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.15-17 Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Colossians 3.2 Pilgrim was very wise to take heed of evangelist's message when evangelist explained the words of the book which Pilgrim was holding. Flee from the wrath to come. Yeah, sin makes Christians stupid. The more influence that a Christian has by the world, the more backslidden and spiritually dry he will become. Lot's answer was ludicrous to those men who came to his door. It was outrageous. He was violating the law of God and the fifth commandment in keeping protection over others, his daughters. It was so convoluted in his mind that he was doing... He thought he was doing a good thing. That's how much sin had affected him. And the more a Christian partakes of the world, the more they move further away from God. And we deem that backsliding because you only have two measures to move by. Either you go forward or you go backward. There's no neutral. We call that spiritual declension. It is the spiritual position where a Christian does not listen to the things of God, but falls into sin. And that has to be distinguished between the exceedingly faulty idea of the carnal Christian and that whole mess, thinking that somebody can be changed or saved and not change. That's impossible. Jesus says you can tell a tree by its fruit. A good tree does not produce bad fruit and a bad fruit and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. And in First John, it tells us in chapter two, he that is born of God doth not sin. So take that one to the bank. And see how that explains the carnal Christian. Lot was not a carnal Christian. Because even in the luxury of life he had in Sodom, he was judging righteously. Exposing their unrighteousness. Though he himself did backslide into sins that he wasn't aware of. Even until the messengers made known to them their intent upon the city. At that point, some of his strange wickedness and depravity came out. If the Christian's church life or spiritual life or walk with God or the like has become ho-hum. They are either in either of two places. They are either lost or they're going back into their former ways. Sometimes the Spirit of God will, as Isaiah says, forsake you for a little time until they repent of things, until they are awakened to some of the things that they may be doing that are unrighteous before God. Sometimes God, because he is a loving father, will give his children over to the desire for the world for a time to chastise them, to humble them back into a right relationship with him, a righteous one. Sometimes God even goes so far as to strike his children with sickness or financial ruin or spiritual emptiness and even death for the continuance in sinful behavior. Did you know that Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11 and partaking of the Lord's Supper the wrong way? 
many of you are sick. Many of you have fallen asleep, he says. If you endure chastening, God deals with your sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, it seemed best to them, but he for our own profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful in the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we are tr uh, truly children, we endure through this chastening, and we come out better and righteous and holy. But if not, we will become a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife, who was not truly righteous. And God cut her off from her people, because she still had Sodom in her heart. Lot was spared from the coming destruction, and God spares his righteous people. He is righteous. God makes a person righteous and he will not let them perish and God will ultimately deliver his people from the world. Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Not only is Christ the Savior of the righteous but he's also the judge of the wicked. What does Christ do? Well, he, he dies for us. He's raised for us. He intercedes for us. He keeps us and he protects us. The only way a person can escape swift destruction or escape worldliness in the world is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to have the Spirit of God working in them. Thus, repentance is part of their life as essential. People like Lot's wife can always be outwardly fearful of the wrath of God but not inwardly changed by his Spirit. So ultimately, they'll always look back. Sometimes people falsely profess Christ just out of a fear of going to hell. But the truly righteous, those who learn of the finished work of Christ forever will be saved. So then, we take those ideas that the Lord is swift to destroy the wicked and that the world can affect the Christian as he is in the midst of that which is wicked and must guard himself, how does your life fare in viewing that? Are you more satisfied in the world than you are with God? Clarify this. Do you spend more time with worldly things than you do with Christ? What's first and foremost on your mind? The pleasures of the world? The holiness of God? Let's clarify that. When you come home from work, do you immediately engage yourself with worldly passions or do you spend time with God? Is that how you begin your day or end your day? Maybe you could ask yourself, why are there problems? Why are there financial problems or relational problems or spiritual problems? All of these come upon the Christian who, for lack of a better term, but with a very good analogy from the text, hesitate. Who think that Life in Sodom is worthy of just thought and thinking the things of Christ and being captivated by him. Do you make time for the world and then gripe and groan about the time that you don't have for God? I don't have time. I'd like to have more time. I wish I had more time to do those godly things. 
Well, those are the kind of words that backslidden Christians speak. Because loving the world brings a danger of swift destruction on us. Christ warns us as Christians today. Our life might be required of us today. We don't know if we're going to make it through the day. How will we fare before the throne of grace? When all of heaven watches the backslidden Christian judged before the throne of God, they'll quote Job 19 and verse 20. He has escaped by the skin of his teeth. Heard that phrase. Oh, by the skin of his teeth. That's Job. There will be Christians who escape by the skin of his teeth. There's a little story about a chauffeur who put an ad in the newspaper and asked that he wanted a skilled driver. So three men applied for the position. And the first got in the car with him and he said, I'm going to test you. I want you to drive me up this particular road. It's dangerous because there's no railing. Get me safely to the top and then back here to the house. And so he says, I'm very skilled. There will be no problem. He says, watch how skilled I am. And he drove two inches away from the side of the cliff, all of the way up, all of the way back, brought him back safely. The second, who was there, had to do the same. And he said he was so skilled that he could do it one inch away, all the way up, all the way back. And so he did, safely. The third says he was so skilled, he would get him up and back safely and drove as far away from the curb as he possibly could. He stayed away from the edge, brought him up, brought him back safely, and he was the one who got the job. Abraham watched the destruction of the city from afar. He wasn't in the city. He wasn't near the city. He didn't choose. If you recall, when we went over that particular portion of Scripture and debating with Lot about where they would settle, he did not pick Sodom and Gomorrah, even though it was very fertile land. Interesting perspective he must have had. The smoke rose as from a great furnace up into the sky, while Abraham stayed safe, far away. We have to love Christ more than we love the world. And we have to love him more than we love sin. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord says to his churches in Revelation 2, Christ requires a loveless Christian to repent. It's not something that he only requires of the people of Sodom or of Nineveh or of the wicked. Sight of sin and sorrow for sin confession of sin, shame for sin, and hatred of it, and turning from it. Oftentimes, Christians believe that repentance is just confessing, and that's it. We told God what's, what we've done wrong, we make note of that, and we're done. But it's all of those things. It's hating it and turning from it. We never seem to get past number two. And there's six different parts to it. That is not the repentance that God wants to honor we often quote 1 John 1, 6, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Christians which hold confession of sin as repentance will quickly have their lampstand removed because that's not what repentance is about. 
we as Christians, knowing the Lord's anger with sin and swift destruction of wickedness, must love him with a sincere love. Are you like Lot who is bound somewhat by the city? Or do you quickly flee, heeding God's warnings through the scriptures? Was he more interested in satisfying the sinners and pleasing God? Interesting question to think about Lot. The scripture commands you to which of three characters today? Are you a person of Sodom who has deceived himself in thinking that you're saved? Maybe you're one who's a weak, wavering Christian, backslidden in sin, tempted by the world like Lot. Or Abraham, who watches the destruction from afar and who is never involved with the sinfulness of the city in the first place. Maybe we're reminded of those three different characters in the text this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the role of the righteousness of Christ that is wrapped around us. We who profess our faith in you, who are Christians before you, following all of the scripture as we are so strengthened by your spirit, we pray that you would help us to please strengthen us more, give us more of your spirit, aid us more that we might be righteous and holy and not be like Lot and not be so affected by the city that we would want to dwell there for the sake of something that's worldly, even if we are giving those righteous judgments against things that we might see around us. Lot had been affected by sin, Lord, and we pray, O oh God, that we would not involve us in the Sodoms and Gomorrahs of our age, whether they be ideas or things, or the world around us in some way, but that you would keep us safe from those things, and that you would help us to be like Abraham, who watches the smoke rise from afar. We ask, O oh Lord, for strength in Christ, and pray that you would help us commit ourselves to you to act righteously every day. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.